Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. If you have a Bible, open up with me to Acts chapter 4 this morning. Acts chapter 4, and we are going to finish chapter 4 and go into chapter 5 this morning. So, great stuff going on here. If you've not been with us, the church is going great. The enemy is trying to thwart the plans of God. He, uh, he causes the uh, religious leaders to rise up and persecute the church, but the church is united and they are moving forward. Today, he has a little bit of a, di- of a different kind of ploy that we're going to find here. Uh, so stand with me. We're going to read our text this morning, Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of the lands, of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, they kept back for himself, uh, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And here we have, God, a a storyline that is so important to us here this morning, relating to genuine and counterfeit Christianity. And we ask you, Lord, to just open our hearts to what you would want to say to us today. Where do we land? Lord, let us not reject your Holy Spirit working in our lives this morning, but may we humbly receive whatever it is that you want to say to us. God, we know that you stand at the door and knock. And we pray that we would be willing to let you in, to allow you to do the work that you want to do this morning. This applies to both believers and unbelievers. So Lord, have your way in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Anyone who knows anything about fine art knows that there, you have to be super careful about what you buy because there is a lot of counterfeits out there. Apparently, the fine art market, the global circulation is suspected, nearly 50% of the global market is to be suspected counterfeit. That's a lot of fake art out on the market. One of the most infamous forgers of art in the 20th century was a Dutch man named Han van Morgen. His most successful counterfeit, get this, was Supper at Emmaus. It had to do with Jesus, right? I mean, that's his most famous counterfeit art that he made was a picture of Jesus at Emmaus. And I don't know if you can see it up here. I didn't know that Jesus was Dutch, but apparently he is there. I don't know. You can see the... Isn't it funny how in cultures, people just paint Jesus however they are. Like it's, you know, it's, it's really interesting. But uh, that was his most famous painting there. 
he, he did it while he was living in, in 1937 in the south of France, and it was a replica of uh, Vermeer, who was uh, the guy that originally painted that in the 17th century. Experts could not tell the difference. He did such an amazing job of, of duplicating that painting. In his uh, biography, it was estimated that uh, Van Mergen duped buyers out of more than $30 million in the early 1900s. That's the equivalent of around $254 million today. Now, I'm not sure which is more alarming, the, the, the $30 million or the inflation. I'm not sure which is more concerning there, but, uh, you know, here, here's the reality. Counterfeits are everywhere, including the church. There are counterfeits even within the, the church. There are people that paint themselves as the real deal when, in fact, they are not. Uh, Jesus calls them tares amongst the wheat. He also calls them goats amongst the sheep. And so the issue becomes uh, being able to distinguish between the two. Van Mergen uh, was so good at the way that he counterfeited paintings that experts couldn't tell the difference of what was real and what wasn't. But the, that's where this analogy breaks down because God does know the difference and he is the only expert. He knows the difference between who is his and who isn't his. He knows who is a tare and who is a weed, who is a goat, and who is a sheep. And we have to leave that specific uh, thing to him. He will, he will cause that information to be known. God always exposes uh, counterfeit Christians for the purpose of drawing them to himself and for the purpose of protecting his church. Uh, he also talked about wolves amongst the, the sheep, right? And uh, so there's many, many, even in, in, in leadership in churches, there are counterfeit Christians. Now, how do we tell the difference? Jesus gives us this parable of the weeds in, in Matthew chapter 13. Perhaps you're familiar with it. In fact, the entirety of Matthew 13 is so interesting because Jesus is talking about, you know, the parable of the sowers and the difference between the types of hearts, right? In the, in the genuine heart, there's only one field, one soil that yields the real thing. And then all the other three are fake versions of the real deal, right? And eventually they're exposed. He goes on and he gives various parables in this chapter relating to counterfeit Christianity. It's so interesting. But one of them happens to be this one right here, the parable of the weeds, Matthew 13, beginning in verse 24, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds amongst the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And his servants of the master, uh, the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? Um, he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell uh, the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn." Now, here's the important thing that we need to understand of what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that it's not your responsibility to figure out who is a tear and who is a weed. That's not your job. 
you're not the Holy Spirit, you don't know. And in your effort to try and protect yourself or protect the church or whatever, what you will end up doing is pulling up wheat with tares. And, and that's just to say that we can peek into people's lives at different points and they may not be where they should be. But that doesn't mean that they're not, they don't belong to Jesus. So we have to be very careful about how we handle this subject, about counterfeit Christianity and about genuine Christianity. The Lord is the one who will deal with this. Notice it's not going to be you at, in Matthew 25 that's going to be separating the sheep from the goats. He'll do that. He'll take care of that. He doesn't need you to separate the tares from the wheat. Uh, and, and so Jesus, you know, the first thing that he does is he gives credit where credit is due relating to this, and it's the enemies uh, responsible for the tares amongst the wheat. The tear he's talking about is the darnel plant that as it is sown, it looks just like wheat. As it gr begins to grow up, it looks just like wheat. But at the harvest then, it, 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 it appears like a, like a weed. What Jesus is saying is, when I come and I stand before, I'll be able to determine who is mine and who isn't. You know, Jesus said that all that the Father has given me, I hold in my hand. I know who they are. My sheep hear my voice. He knows who belongs to him and who doesn't. And he is faithful and he will be faithful to reveal that uh, because he loves people. and He wants people to, first and foremost, deal with uh, their counterfeitness so that they can become genuine Christians and not uh, be damned forever. God desires to spend eternity with us. And so he's faithful to expose this. The, the other thing is that disciples are horrible at doing this. And, and we know this for a fact because, uh, you know, there was a tear amongst the wheat even in the 12. They had no idea that Judas was a counterfeit Christian. The disciples walked with Judas for three years straight, were with him all the time, just like Jesus, they did not know the difference. They could not know the difference. And it was, the deal was, uh, that was very evident at the Last Supper where Jesus said, one of you will betray me. And they're all looking around going, is it me, Lord? Had no idea. Judas wasn't in the corner with a little pitchfork and, you know, black hood and everything. No one had any idea. In fact, I will suggest to you, total suggestion, he was the, the least of the suspected amongst the group. Judas was the least amongst, perhaps, that's how good the devil is, folks. That's how good he is. And we know that um, Judas was, in fact, a counterfeit Christian. And many, many people will go to their grave counterfeit Christians. How do we know? Because Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, many in that day will come before me and they will say, Lord, didn't I do this or didn't I do that? in your name. And the Lord will say, depart from me. I never knew you. The saddest moment in the history of the world there where people go to their grave thinking they have something they don't. They're not real with themselves. And, and I'm a firm believer that people know. And they go to, go to the grave with not having a genuine relationship with Jesus and they stand before him trying to justify themselves in their works. And it will never be good enough. The only works that can justify you are the works of the Son of God on the cross and the resurrection from the dead, folks. Many people will fake it till they make it, but the problem is many people won't make it. 
and many people will die and their faith will be sealed. My prayer is this morning that if you have any question about where you sit with the Lord, that today be the day that you put the flag in the sand and you say, Lord, I'm giving myself wholly and completely to you. Surrender your life to Jesus. Be sincere about um, the call to come to him, to call him Lord. And, you know, how can you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say, he says. So this morning, if you're not sure where you are, I pray that God will draw you to himself this morning, that you will confess him as Lord, so you will never have to worry about hearing the words, depart from me, I never knew you. That's God's heart for you this morning. The, the, the title of my message this morning, Counterfeit Christianity, it is at its best here in our text this morning. There, I've divided this into three sections. We're going to look at the attributes of genuine Christianity. Then we're going to look at the counterfeit couple. And then finally, the end result. So first, the attributes of genuine Christianity. Look at verse 32 with me. Now, the full number of those who had believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Uh, it's, it's interesting that be, even though we can't tell, distinguish between what a tear and a wheat is, God is faithful to expose it, and that's what we're going to see here. And we're going to see what genuine Christianity looks like first. Jesus made it plain that uh, we, can, we can see the indications of genuineness and counterfeit simply by the fruit of a person's life. We can see that. We can't tell for sure, but that is an indication of where a person is, right? And, and Jesus says that in Luke chapter 6. He talks in Luke 6, 43, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. The Lord is all about the heart. That's what he looks at. He's not looking at the outside. He's looking at the inside. And, and what he does, though, is he reveals our heart through our fruit. So in other words, if I'm not bearing any fruit at all, you know, and it could be that I'm not a Christian, or it might be that I'm completely off mission and I'm just not where I should be. Uh, you know, uh, it, he, he looks at it based on what is going on in our lives. Everything stems from our heart. That's why the Bible says, be diligent with your heart. Keep it. For out of it spring the wells of life. The, you know, it's your heart is what you have to be concerned about. What is your heart of heart like? That tells the story to you. Are you a good tree or are you a bad tree? How do I know what's in your heart? When you're by yourself and you are, you know, doing the things that you're doing, whatever they might be, what is your heart doing? How is your heart speaking? That's the question you have to ask yourself. That's how we examine ourselves. We examine the fruit of our heart. If we are bearing the fruit worthy of repentance, Jesus says that we belong to him then. So we know that. Um, there is one particular fruit that is the most important, though, and which I think, you know, puts the stamp on whether someone is genuine or not. And I think uh, it's, it's very clear. It's the manifestation of love in the life of, of a genuine believer. 
And I don't say that. Jesus said that. Jesus said that in John chapter 13, verse 35. He said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That is the fruit that he's looking for in our lives. He's looking for people who are displaying the fruit of love. Wait, where else do I hear that? Galatians chapter 5. Where does that, the fruit of love come from? From the Holy Spirit. Where's the Holy Spirit? The Spirit, Holy Spirit is inside of me. And the Holy Spirit bears the singular fruit of love. It's not the fruits of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit, singular, which manifests itself in, in joy, patient, or joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All stemming from love. The single most important attribute of genuine Christianity is love for one another. Counterfeit Christians will not be able to produce this kind of love because it's Holy Spirit produced. This is speaking of agape love here. This is speaking about a love that loves because it decides to love, not because of its being loved. It's not reciprocal. You make a decision and you love. Uh, and that's the kind of love that God displays to us and it's the kind of love that we're to display to each other. So counterfeit Christians will not be able to emulate that. They can produce a little bit of plastic fruit and it looks right in the moment, but there will be a time when that will fail. And you will, it just like Jamie's and Jamie's and Janie's and Jambres in Egypt, when they were able to do a certain level of the, the, the plagues that God was bringing down through Moses, but at some point they couldn't emulate them anymore. It's the same in here. And, and God will be exposing that because he loves people. There's four forms of love that manifest um, themselves through authentic Christianity. First, love will manifest itself in the form of unity. And that's what we find here. Notice that they were of one heart and soul. They were of one heart and one soul. That means that they were literally doing life together. They were communing with one another. It wasn't a you know, a Sunday, Sunday morning, an hour and a half, hey, high five, you see you next week kind of a thing. They were doing life together. They lived together. They, they ate together. They hung out together. We read about this in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. The church was unified, and that unity continued on. They were of one heart and one soul, both externally in their works towards each other and also internally their thoughts for one another. They were unified. They were, and listen, this is a direct answer to Jesus' prayer. His high priestly prayer, John chapter 17, Jesus prayed for this. He prayed that his, his, his followers would be one as he and the Father are one. You know, Hebrews chapter 1 talks about Jesus being the exact imprint of God. Literally, it means that he was cut from the same cloth. Jesus is saying, I want them to be like us that they're all cut from the same cloth, that they are so one together, they don't know where one ends and the other begins, that they are unified. Jesus said in John 17, listen to his, this is Jesus praying for you, by the way. John 17, 20, verses 23, I do not ask for these only, speaking of those who are alive, but also for those who believe in me through their words, speaking of us that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, 
so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perf uh, become perfectly one, so that the world, listen, may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. What a beautiful prayer that Jesus prayed. And here we have in the very beginning of the church, uh, you know, the answered prayer of Jesus here. They are one together. They are unified. The early church is one heart and one mind. They are steadfast and listen, koinonia. Koinonia, they are communing together, doing life together, fellowshipping and such. This was what made the church so special, folks. It's what made the early church so special. They truly did life together. Hey, if you're lonely in Christ today, let me tell you, there's a room full of people that want to do life with you. Uh, maybe there are some here that don't, but there are many here that do want to do life with you. You know, and your responsibility is to put yourself into that. Don't expect somebody to come and grab your hand. You insert yourself into that fellowship. You take control of that and you say, I want to be part of this. You own it and you will find it. I promise it exists in the church. God all, has always had a remnant of genuine Christianity that has existed just like this early church where people want to do life together. They want to commune together. And so that exists for you this morning. Don't lose hope in the church. Become what you want to see. Don't talk about all the things that aren't happening. Step into what you want to see happen. Be a leader. Be somebody who says, I'm not going to settle for, for this one, once a week kind of situation. I'm going to get to know people. I'm going to be vulnerable with them. I'm going to be transparent. I'm going to let them know what's up in my life because I want accountability and I want to bless people uh, through God's working in my own life. Be those kinds of people. That's what they were doing. So they were unified. It's the first manifestation of number two is not only were they unified, but they were also generous. Another manifestation of love in the body of Christ is generosity. Here we find that they were taking their belongings and they were using them uh, and they, they made them, they had everything in common. Now, contrary to woke Christianity, uh, this is not an affront on capitalism this is, not, uh, this is not saying that we should be socialistic or communist or, um, you know, communist. Thank you very much. <laughs> Sometimes I'm, here, I'm at the train station and the train takes off without me. <laughs> and I'm like, did you guys hear that whistle? <laughs> God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, baby. I love that, man. So generosity, they had everything in common. This isn't speaking about uh, communism. It's talking about communism. And this is not forced. This is from the heart. This is a, a response because I'm so loved by God that I'm going to love others the way that he loves me. And I'm going to be so generous with all that he has given me. Let me tell you one thing that is perhaps the greatest danger for the Christian is the blessings of God. The blessings of God can become the curses of God in your life if you're not careful, if you don't handle your blessings correctly. What do I mean by that? I think we have to have a specific mindset when it comes to the blessings of God. We have to understand what they're in our lives for. Why is God blessing me? 
It's never simply because he thinks you're awesome, although he does. He does think you're awesome, but God wants to work through you. And so he blesses you so that you can be a blessing. Does that make sense? God wants you to be an extension of him. And so he gives you certain things so that you can extend his hand of grace to those people around you. And so maybe he gives you property and you can be like a couple in our church that builds a place for people to find refuge on their property. Or you can, you know, whatever he's given you, you use it for the glory of God to be a blessing to others. The wrong thing to do is hold on to it. Christians, be careful that you don't become close-gripped with the blessings of God and you become stingy in Christ. That's what the devil wants for you. He wants you to hold on to everything you have because the, the more that you hold a tight grip on your possessions, they hold a tight grip on you. And then you can't be a blessing to anybody else. It, they understood the purpose of their possessions and why they had the things that they had so that they could bless other people. And they were a huge blessing to the body of Christ. They were using the things that God had given them to bless the body. He gives us the wherewithal to do that, folks. I was thinking about, you know, uh, Joseph, you know, in, in, in the Old Testament when God gave him the dream, you know, about all his brothers bowing down to him and all that stuff, and, and he didn't fully comprehend that. But years later, he was then in Egypt, sold through slavery. I mean, just horrible things that his brothers did to him. Right? But now he's in a place where he's second in command and the Lord says, I want you to start to store up grain. Now, if, if you're like a human being that is not operating in the spirit of God, then you're thinking like, forget my family. How they hurt me so badly. I'm not going to help them at all and, and I'm going to store up the grain for myself. But that's not what God said. God said, I, wanna, I want to bless you with the knowledge and the understanding of how to store all this up and everything so that you can bless your family who cursed you, who put you in this place. You know, and he, he, he comes in this understanding of God working everything out for the good. How he comes to that understanding of how Satan meant it for evil, but God used it for good. And, and he understands I'm here because God wants to bless me and then wants me to extend that blessing out into my family. He was a type of Christ to an early Israel, folks, to the 12 tribes of Israel. He, God saved the 12 tribes of Israel through Joseph, whom they persecuted. It's an amazing thing. Understand your blessings, why God has given them to you. It's not just about you. It's also just not about your immediate family, although you need to take care of your family. But understand, he wants to do more. And I promise if you will open yourself up like that, you will see God use you in ways that you could never imagine. As soon as you come to God like this, palms open, hands open, he starts flowing through you in all kinds of different ways. So understand that, these blessings. Be generous with God, with what God has given you. Now, why were they doing this? Yeah, there was need and everything. Many people believe that they were doing this because... Um, they, that of the uh, second coming of Christ, they thought it was the imminent return of Christ was so near that none of this would matter anyway. So they just sold all their possessions and they, um, they gave it away because Jesus was coming back. I don't think so. 
I don't think so. I might be the minority in that regarding, I could be wrong, but I think there's more to it. I think there's some very practical reasons why the early church is doing what they're doing here. Um, remember we read in Acts chapter 2 that after the um, Pentecost, after the, you know, the Holy Spirit had fallen on them and Peter gave the sermon, 3,000 people got saved, remember? And we talked about how the idea was that those people from, were from foreign lands and they didn't go home. They stayed there. They were, they were learning about the gospel. They were being discipled and all this kind of stuff. Who was paying for all of this? The believers were paying for all of this. They were supporting those people so they could be raised up, so they could be discipled in Christ. Well, now the church isn't 3,000, it's 5,000 people. So the need is going up. People from all over the place are coming to Jerusalem and they're, they're getting saved and they can't leave. Why? Because there's nowhere else to learn about Jesus. You can't go to the local, you know, your local church in your local town, wherever it might be, because there isn't one. You are the church now. You have to be raised up. You have to be discipled. And I think that a lot of what is going on here is practical in that sense. There are people from all, all places all over the world who are there in Jerusalem being discipled now by, and there are needs within the body. And so people are saying, hey, let's give, let's give of our possessions and such, and um, let's help these people out. Let's be generous with what God has given us and such. And that's exactly what's happening. They are doing that. Now, I think it makes a lot of sense, but, but let me, let's go on to verse 34 and then I'll bring it back to that. Verse 34 goes on to say that there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands and, or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So there was a ton of need in the church, period. People had financial needs. They had to buy food. They had to have all these kinds of things. The other thing that was going on in this culture is Christians were losing their jobs. They weren't able to work because they were standing for Christ. And so you can see where all of this would develop. Certainly, they, the, 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 Jesus, the, the anticipation of Jesus coming back was certainly part of it. But I don't think that was the primary thing. I think there was real need in this situation. You know, and, and so I say all that to say, don't go sell all your stuff yet because you think Jesus is coming back, because he is coming back. I want to be super clear. He could come back in the next breath. That's how close we are. But here's what I would say to you is, you should also plan like you're going to die a natural death. You should also plan like you're going to die a natural death. Here's what happens here in this moment. These guys give everything that they have, and two chapters later, they're poor. They can't provide. None of them can provide for anybody. And Paul is going through the churches in the rest of the book of Acts asking for proceeds to give to the church in Jerusalem because they're so poor. And so I would just say, make sure, be generous, but make sure it's from God. You know, don't, don't take your family stuff and don't provide for your family, you know. And, and then also what becomes the premise for the early church, by the way, and Paul makes this super clear, moving forward, is if you don't work, you don't eat. If you don't work, you don't eat. So there was something, you know, the enemy jumps into the, these moments of generosity and he starts to pervert them. People start to take advantage of them and all that kind of stuff. That doesn't mean we don't do that. But we have to be Holy Spirit-led in that. This early church was, 
operating in love, being generous. I'm not saying what they did was wrong. I think it was a great thing of what they were doing here. But be led by the Spirit in that. Make sure that you are, the Lord is leading you to do what you're doing. It's interesting how when we talk about generosity and proceeds and, and giving and all this kind of stuff, it's easy to, to, to think of percentages and law keeping and all this kind of stuff. That's not at all what was happening here. These guys aren't checking things off the box because they're trying to fulfill the law. What do I mean? You know, tithing, you know. Oh, we got to tithe, you know. And so that's why we're doing these things. That, that, that's not the New Testament mandate for giving. Do you know these guys weren't giving 10%? They were giving 100%. They were giving everything of what they had. That's the problem in this text, actually, is people pretending like they're giving all when they're not, and they're, it's really a lie uh, and a false perception. The issue here in the New Testament when, when we're talking about giving is totally different than, the, than the, the Old Testament. You know, you don't have to feel guilty. And, and what Satan has done, I think as a direct um, result of this passage and what happened in this church because they were so unified, they were so generous with one another, Satan goes, I have to make this a huge issue in the church because if I don't, these guys are going to be unstoppable. The church will be unstoppable. And so what does he do? He makes the stigma that all the church cares about is your what? Money. I think more of you know that. It is a massive, massive, uh, you know, stigma in the church. Before I was saved, I didn't go to church. I didn't know anything about the Lord. Um, but what I knew was all the church cared about was my money. That's what I thought. Where did I get that from? How did I come to that conclusion? The enemy wants to stifle the generosity. He wants to make people feel like, oh yeah, this church is bubble. You know, they just all they care. Anytime you know a subject money comes up in the church, people are like, oh yeah, here we go again. You know, all they care about is money. We teach the Bible. The Bible talks about money. The, the Bible talks about being a good steward, being a giver, and all these kinds of things. But I want to tell you, here is the mandate for the New Testament. It is not tithing. Tithing is an Old Testament law. New Testament mandate, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. You can write this down. This is what it says. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. There is no checking of the box here. Oh, 10% to the T, did it, Lord. It, it has nothing to do with that. Here's what I want to tell you about New Testament giving. Number one, the way that you're to give is you're to give consciously. You're to give consciously. In other words, you've decided what you're going to give. I'm going to decide to do this, Lord. I'm going to give this. You're not doing this because of reluctancy. You're not doing this because you're under compulsion to fulfill a law or to please other people. You have decided to give, and that's what you're doing. Who are you giving to? You're giving to God. I've decided to give it to him. He is the one, he's the focus. I'm giving this to the Lord. I'm not manipulated by man. I'm not doing this because I, um, I want to be seen or whatever. That's, that's the other thing. That's why I don't know what people give. That way I have no, uh, I have no pressure to treat anybody different. And uh, that was the pass down from Pastor Chuck to every Calvary Chapel pastor. Is, hey, just have somebody else handle that so you don't know. And uh, Pastor Chuck was such a great example of that. 
one, one specific story was that a guy came in to his office and said, hey, I want to donate a, a million dollars to you, Pastor Chuck. And, and, and Pastor Chuck said, I, I don't want your money. I'm not going to take your money. And, and, it, and there was something going on there with that guy. But, but you could see how tempting that would be like, well, hey, well, come on in, man. <laughs> let's, uh, let's have lunch. Million bucks, huh? But it's not about that. What is God doing? What is God? Is that from God or is that from the enemy? Pastor Chuck said, I'm never going to be a slave to man. I love that. You decide what you're going to give, and you give without your right hand knowing what your left hand is doing. In other words, you're not, no one's spreading that around. You don't, you know, it's you're doing it because you're giving it to God. God loves a cheerful giver, somebody who loves to do it somebody who has a genuine heart. And I promise you, if you're operating in the spirit of God, you're going to love to do that. You're going to have a cheerful heart about doing these things. And, uh, you know, over time, as I got into the church, we started giving, you know, I had no idea what that was even all about. Just started doing it. Man, I, I was so blessed to do it. Still so blessed to be able to write a check to God. Thank you, Lord. You're so good to me, you know, and, and that, that's the idea here is nobody's, no one's got their gripped, your, their possessions gripped and they're not willing to, to do what, whatever the Lord asked them to do. I'll give it all, Lord. I don't care. You know, kind of a mentality. It's being generous. And that's, that's a Holy Spirit driven uh, attribute of a true believer who's operating in love. When you see a need and you're like, oh Lord, how can we supply that need? The Lord is the one that guides in that though. Verse 36 goes on to name a specific person who was doing this. It says in verse 36, thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So Joseph, you guys know who Joseph is, right? Probably not. You don't know who Joseph is, but you know who Barnabas is. Same guy. This is the same dude. Barnabas he was called Barnabas by the apostles in the early church because he was such an encourager to people. Man, that guy, Joseph, he is such an encourager. So they nickname him Barnabas. Hey, let's call him Barnabas, son of encouragement, right? This is the same Barnabas that we read about later as Paul, Saul, gets converted. Acts chapter 9, gets saved. He takes some time. The Lord disciples him or whatever. He shows up in Jerusalem and none of the apostles want anything to do with him because they're afraid of him. Because they're like, oh, this is the guy that was killing Christians. I don't want anything to do with this guy. This guy is probably faking us out, trying to make us think that he's a believer. He's going to come in and arrest us all and kill us. Right? The only person that stepped in the middle of that was this guy, Barnabas, son of encouragement. He took a chance on Paul. He put his life in danger in some way, shape, or form, to say, like, God can reach anybody. He can reach that, that guy, Saul. He, this guy says he's a believer. I'm going to step into that, and I'm going to see if I can facilitate a conversation with the apostles and stuff. I'm going to get to know him. He probably vetted him, probably spent time with him to see, like, is this guy genuine? Probably asking the Lord, Holy Spirit, is, give me wisdom as I minister to this guy and to see if he's legit or not. No one else would do this. But Barnabas was that kind of guy that he would step in and he would bridge the gap between the apostle Paul and the rest of the apostles. And then, of course, they receive him in after this. That was all because of him. 
because he was being just, you know, Holy Spirit-led dude, a Holy Spirit-led guy. If there's one thing, one attribute I could say about him, he's Holy Spirit-led. He's an encourager to people. He's a bridger of man. He brings man together. Man, you know, what, what a blessing to have Barnabas is within the body of Christ that encourage. We all need encouragement. Everybody needs to be encouraged and, and built up and, and, you know, all of that. And, and man, God bless those Barnabases in our, our, our body. Now, when you think of Barnabas, something, as you read this text, there should be a red flag that goes up if you're a Bible student. You should automatically go like, wait a second, he's a Levite. How does he have land? That's a problem, right? Because we know when the children of Israel came out of Egypt into the promised land, that the Levites were not given any inheritance. They, the Lord said, I'm your inheritance, right? Well, he's a Levite and he's got land that he sells. It's not really a problem too, too much because it, I think it's from a foreign land. You know, I think he's from a different place and he sold the land in, in somewhere else or, um, you know, maybe it was generational uh, from, you know, before all of that even, who knows? But what we know is that Barnabas did a very generous thing here. He sold his land. He saw the need in the body, probably led by the Spirit, sells his land and says, okay, you know what? The fruit of love is generosity and the Lord's leading me to do this. So here, here's all my proceeds. It leaves them to the, the, body, to the apostles' feet and they distribute it from there according to the need of the body. What a, what a blessing he was. What a blessing he was. Now, um, there, there's two more attributes from love that I want to show you, and they're both found in verse 33. So we're going to go back up to verse 33 real quick. And with great power, and the apostles were given their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them. So not only do we find unity in the body, generosity, but thirdly, we find uh, love manifesting itself in the form of outreach, in the form of outreach. The, the here... You know, if you have, uh, if you don't ever want to talk about Jesus or share Jesus with other people, you have to ask yourself, is Jesus really in me? Right? The Holy Spirit isn't trying to contain Jesus. He's trying to make Jesus famous. Right? So if the Holy Spirit's inside of you, you're going to have this innate desire to tell people about Jesus. I'm not saying it won't be, it won't be that it's super easy to do at times, but you're going to have that in, on your heart. Man, I want to share Jesus with people. Why? I want people to have what I have. I want people to experience the freedom that I have. I want people's sins to be forgiven like my sins are forgiven. I want people to experience this. This is the heart of evangelism, not the gift of evangelism. Two different things. The apostles probably had the gift of evangelism, but the idea here is the heart of evangelism the desire to, to reach out to, to the lost community. It says that they, they had great power. God gave them great power, meaning he matched their heart for outreach with authentication of the message. Remember, they didn't have the word of God like we do. They, they weren't saying, hey, you know, in, in Matthew chapter seven, you know, Jesus said this. That's not what they were doing. They didn't have that. They didn't have the word of God in that format. So the Holy Spirit would authenticate their words by doing miraculous things. We see this already in the first five chapters, four, four chapters of the book of Acts. God is doing miraculous things through the apostles. Why? To authenticate the message so that people know that they're from God. 
And when they bring the message, the message is correlated, listen to this, to the resurrection of Jesus. Do you know that the gospel hinges on the resurrection of Jesus? Without the resurrection of Jesus, there is no gospel. Without the resurrection of Christ, we're dead in our sins, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. The, the apostles, their message all through the book of Acts is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why? Because that's the linchpin of the gospel message, folks. They had a heart for outreach. They wanted people to know about this Jesus who came and died and who rose again from the dead uh, for them. They were not afraid to share it, which is a different mentality than they'd had previous, right? They were afraid. Now they're not afraid. This is, again, a genuine attribute of Christianity. Fourth and finally, love will manifest itself in the form of, listen to this, great grace. Great grace. They were, great grace was upon them all. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. God's riches at Christ's expense. There's a ton of different ways to explain grace. But the point of it is, is grace is not something you've earned. You don't deserve it, in fact. Grace is God extending his hand to you because he loves you, not because of who you are, but because of who he is. That's grace. And it says here that great grace was upon them. I think that great grace um, should be upon us. Why? Because we're recipients of great grace. God has given you great grace in your life. Don't you dare hold back grace in other people's lives. You better be a person who gives people great grace because you've been given great grace. And what you've been given, you ought to give back, right? He's given us great grace. The church was unified. It was generous. Man, it was an outreaching church that was a gracious church. This is what the early manifestation of what a genuine believer would look like. Pretty simple things. But things that you could see are different than the world. This was the church. Now, there is no transition in this storyline. There are no chapters. There are no verses. Here we have Barnabas who sells his property, and then we go on to chapter 5, verse 1, and it goes, but, but a man named Ananias. This is paralleling the story, con actually contrasting Joseph and the counterfeit couple. Joseph representing genuine Christianity. Now we have the counterfeit couple here in verse 1 of chapter 5. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. As I stated earlier, God is faithful to reveal fraudulent people. And here we find him revealing this counterfeit couple, Ananias and Sapphira. God is going to use the momentum of what's happening in the church, the unity, the, you know, all of the things that are going on that we just talked about, the love and all of that. He's going to use that momentum to expose what's going on in the heart of Ananias and Sapphira. And I want to suggest to you that this probably isn't the first time he's been knocking on their heart. This probably isn't the first time that God has been saying, hey, uh, what are you doing? Why don't you come to me? You know, standing at the door knocking. But God is faithful to reveal this because he cares about them for sure. But the sad thing is there's zero, there's zero opportunity to repent in this, in this situation, zero. Because I know God to be incredibly gracious and loving, I have to believe that God gave them much opportunity. 
He gave them so much opportunity that this was the, the final straw. It's the equivalent of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. He didn't do that until Pharaoh had hardened his heart and made that decision. I believe they're in a place in this moment where they have made their decision. I don't care about Jesus. I just want to have the appearance here, which is crazy. But, uh, you know, so, so keep that in mind. Uh, God is using this, the, the momentum of what's happening here in this to, to reveal the, the counterfeit couple, Ananias and Sapphira. It happens right after Barnabas has sold his property. Now, why is this correlating? Probably because when Barnabas did that, the church, knowing it, was probably, you know, in some way giving him, you know, praise. It's thinking like, man, what a great guy that Barnabas is, you know. What, can you believe that he just would sell his property and give it all to the apostles so they could take care of people? And, you know, all the conversations that are happening behind closed doors about Barnabas. Man, did you hear what, you know. And Ananias and Sapphira go, oh, is that how we get in here? Is this how we work our way into the intercessory of all of this stuff and into the midst of this? We just, we just got to sell a little property and tell them we sold it all. We gave it all to them. So they devise a plan, it says. This is intentional. This isn't accidental. They have devised a plan to make the believers there believe that they sold this property, that they're so generous that they're going to give it all away and such. So here comes the exposure now. They, they did that. They sold the property. They brought it to the apostles. Verse 3, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. There's several things going on here. First and foremost, the exposure comes by way, I believe, of a gift of the Holy Spirit called a word of knowledge, a word of knowledge. We see this listed in the, the gifts of the Spirit in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, the gift of knowledge. What is the gift of knowledge? It's knowledge given to you that you didn't have prior. That's something that you learned, something directly that God gave you understanding of. And he does that at times to try and get the attention of a person where he will expose somebody through somebody else, give somebody direct knowledge of something so that they can bring it to light. Now, I want you to know this first and foremost. That should bring some, a little bit of fear in your heart. You're like, well, does he know something about me, man? You know, now you're walking around church going, man, I don't know. Do they? You don't have the word of knowledge, do you? <laughs> Here's what I know. God deals with sin quietly and without the least amount of people involved as possible. That's what I know. God is so gracious in that way. Like, he would just knock on your heart first. And he would say, hey, man, what's going on in your life? Why are you doing that? Oh, Lord, it's okay. You know it's not okay, so let's, let's, let's stop doing it. And the Lord would, would exhaust you in that way. He would come to you multiple times, and he would try and get your attention. And then 
Kind of like Matthew 18, when you don't listen to him, then he brings somebody else to you. And he says, hey, the Lord's been putting you on my heart for some reason. And, you know, is this really? sometimes they don't even know. They don't even know it's a word of knowledge. Like sometimes the Lord just puts something on your heart like, hey, the Lord just, just put on my heart that, you know, there's something going on with you. And that's stage two. It's not a direct full understanding of everything that's going on. He's like, are you okay? You know, and, and, and yeah, I'm, I'm good. Then comes the full-on exposure. Hey, this is what's going on in this person's life. Now, you have a responsibility as a believer when the Lord does that, that you address that. You have a responsibility as a believer. God is, God is actually using you. This is an opportunity for you to be an intercessor for somebody else, to go, be, go um, in between and say, hey, the Lord's speaking to you, speaking to me about you right now. Will you do something about it? And, and I want to encourage you, if the Lord has ever done that, that you use that gift. Because God, that is a gift for, not only because he's trying to get you in the middle of it, but he's trying to help a person and he wants to use you. Sometimes he's got to use tangible people to do that. And he wants to use you. I'll give you an example. Um, we were, my church in Florida, when we were um, getting ready to expand and stuff, we had a church meeting and there, you know, m- most of the church was there. And uh, the pastor was up there saying, you know, hey, this is what we're going to do. And all this kind of stuff. And the Lord, right when he was saying that, the Lord told me like, um, this is not going to happen. It's not going to work that way. Now tell him. And I said, I'm not telling him that. Are you crazy? Are you serious? There's no way that I'm going to tell all these people. Dude, they'll, they're going to like crucify him, you know, kind of thing. And I was like, I'm not doing that. See, I tell you all of all these things in my life because they're, they're real. And God does do this stuff. And he did that, and, and it didn't happen. And so I went to my pastor, and I said, hey, dude, I got to tell you, because he was one of my good friends. If he wouldn't have been, I would have told him, you know, but no, I just can't. <laughs> I said, the Lord showed that to me. When I, we were sitting there praying, you know, when we were doing that thing, the Lord said, hey, this isn't going to happen. And uh, he wanted me to say something. But, dude, I was afraid. I didn't want to say it. And, he, and my pastor got mad at me, actually. And he should have. How dare I hold that back? That wasn't for me. That was for him. So that he didn't have to go down chasing, you know, down a, down a, down a, a rabbit trail that's not leading anywhere. Now, maybe God did it some other way. I don't know. But, but I'm responsible for that. Peter's responsible for this moment. He could have easily said like, wow, Lord, you know, they did go, you know, do I really have to? No, you do have to do it because God is trying to do something in this moment. So Peter calls Ananias to himself. And this is how we know he's not a believer because he says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? Why has Satan filled your heart? These are the exact same words uh, that was used uh, about Judas at the betrayal there in, at the Last Supper when, when it says that Satan entered Judas's heart. That's the same idea. What does it mean to fill your heart? It means completely full. Now, you can't be filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with Satan at the same time. You're either filled with the Holy Spirit and you're not filled with Satan or you're filled with Satan and you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. There is no other way around. There is no in-between there. You either belong to God or you belong to Satan. There is no other side. 
you can't, if you're neutral, you belong to Satan. You know, he, he doesn't necessarily feel everyone's heart in the same way like this. But in this, this tells us that the, the sower of the tear here is Satan. And he's filled Ananias' and Sapphira's hearts to devise this wicked scheme for some plot that he has. We don't even know. We don't know exactly what would have happened here because God nips it in the bud. That's exactly how he deals with sin. Peter says, dude, Satan has control of your life and you've allowed him to do that. And now because you've allowed him that place in your life, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. You didn't lie to me. You've lied to the Holy Spirit, verse 3. You've lied to God, verse 4. What am I saying? The Holy Spirit is God. That's what he's saying. If you if you're, have a Jehovah Witness walk, knock on your door and they say like, well, you know, the Holy Spirit is just the active force of God and, and all this nonsense that's not true, all you have to do is draw them to Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, right here where Peter says the Holy Spirit is God. Triune Godhead. He is the third part of the Trinity, but he, he, he is also God, fully God. You've lied to the Holy Spirit, Ananias. And right then and there, he drops to the ground dead. Now, when I read this, you might, when I first read this, I was kind of thinking like, wow, that's kind of harsh. Pretty harsh thing to do, Lord. I mean, but I think that you won't think it's harsh when you see it in the right light. So let me show you once we consider the faith of Ananias or his wife, Sapphira, in verse 7. After an interval of about three, three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, verse 8, and Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. So Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came and, and they found her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Sapphira is now in the presence of Peter. She has no idea what's happened to her husband and here's, here's what happens. Peter gives her an opportunity. He gives her an opportunity here. And uh, Sapphira did you guys really do it this way? And because she will not betray her husband, which is a great attribute, by the way, just not in this context. She will not betray him. She says, oh yeah, well, of course we did all that, you know, and all that, and all that kind of stuff. And she continues the lie. She had an opportunity to come clean here. And God will give you that opportunity. You know, make sure you take him up on it. When you're caught, be caught. And don't just keep digging a hole. Don't just keep trying to, you know, act like, oh, no, no, no. And that's not, it's not like it, what it seems. Maybe it is. And maybe you should just own up to it. Because God will further expose you. He will. Because he loves you and he loves his church. So here she, she's exposed. Now, here's what I would say. She followed her husband. I want to tell you, ladies, that you do not follow your husband into evilness. Do not follow your husband into evilness. You, if he's trying to lead you into evilness, you tell him, go pound sand. I'm not doing that. 
You go see Pastor Tim, buddy. Here's the thing is, the structure, the family unit, all that God instilled in Genesis chapter 2 is now being questioned again in the marriage relationship between Ananias and Sapphira. The man is the lead his home, and he has led his home into evilness. The woman, is, the woman in the relationship is to submit to the authority of the man, not because he's greater, but because that's the structure that God has put in place. Right? She's, she is to surrender to him unless what he's saying is unbiblical, and then she surrenders to Jesus in that regard. When she's surrendering to or submitting to, to the man, she's submitting to Jesus in the first place. But Jesus is the final authority. And Jesus is a picture of that. He submitted to the Father. Submission is not a bad word. Men are to submit to Christ. Uh, women are to submit to men, children to their parents. It's the way it works. That's the structure, not lesser, not greater. It's just the way God did it. It's to paint a picture of who he is. But authority is given by God, and he is the final authority. And so when any, any kind of authority tries to lead you away from God, you say, no, we don't do it like that. We follow the Lord. He is the ultimate authority. That's who you submit to. She had an opportunity here to surrender to Jesus. She didn't do it. She wasn't willing to do it. She agreed to be dishonest. And, you know, here's the thing is, Ananias is accountable for all of that because he's the leader of the home. He's responsible 100% for all of it. She's not off the hook, though. She's responsible 100% for what she's done. And so you have, you know, I'm, I'm a firm believer that a man has a stricter judgment than because he's the leader of the home. And so guys, are you taking your role seriously? Are you following the Lord? You know, it, it's, it's to be that way. God wants you to be his man in your, in your home. You're, 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 pre, you're, you're the priest, you're the pastor of your home. So you better lead it well. Ladies, you submit to your husband as the Lord says to do so and let him lead. Let him lead. He, Pastor, you don't know my husband. He is just not able to. Uh, I know God and God says, let him do it. That doesn't mean, you know, that you have no say in anything. It's a, it's a collective thing, but there is a chain of authority, chain of command. And we're to, we're to surrender to that. I know it's not super popular in this culture, and I don't care. It's biblical. So uh, that's the reality of it. That's the structure that God put in place. Ananias is directly responsible for the whole thing. His wife is also responsible. Here's what we find in this text. A sin that leads to death. There is a sin that leads to death. There's sin that doesn't lead to death, but ultimately all sin, the wages of sin is what? Death. But there are sins collectively in, in, our, in our lives, even as believers, that will lead to death. 1 John chapter 5, you can read it later, verses 16 and 17. There is sin that leads to death in the believer's life and the unbeliever's life. And in this case, that was it. God had, their faith was sealed. They fell dead before him. And, you know, it's a tragic thing, but it wasn't a... God being mean in the situation, God was dealing with sin ruthlessly because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. That's why. 
If God didn't deal with sin in the church, guys, the church would be way worse off than we are. He does deal with it. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came to reconcile us before the Father, but God still does deal with sin on the horizontal. And he wants to keep his church pure. And, you know, he's ruthless regarding this because it costs everything for him, his own son, to reconcile us. It's so damaging to your life, to the life of people around you. And so, yeah, he does it, but he does it simply as a response to what man has done. He's a holy God, and he does deal with sin swiftly with, with his infinite wisdom and holiness. Now we find the end result, verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Twice we read those words, and great fear came upon them. And great fear came upon them. It wouldn't be a bad thing this morning if great fear came upon us as we consider what's being said here this morning. God is so serious about sin, guys. And it's not a, it's not a wrong thing for us to have a great fear of God. And I mean that in the greatest sense of the word fear. You know, I'll tell you something. When my dad came down the hallway with his belt, I had a great fear of my father. Not that my father was going to crucify me or anything, but that my, I had a great fear of my dad. I was trembling before my father. And my dad was, he wasn't a great, he wasn't, the, he wasn't a perfect guy, but he was a great dad. And he disciplined us. But when I saw him coming down with the belt, I had great fear. There was a trembling in my heart going, oh man, I blew it. I knew my dad loved me at the same time. And I respected the presence of my dad. And I respected the fact that he was the authority in my life. And the things that he said, I listened to. I tried to adapt in my life, even, you know, even with all of his shortcomings as an earthly father. Me not even being a believer, I knew that regard, there was great fear there in, both, in, in all the senses of that word, trembling, reverence, respect. And that's how we should view God. He's a holy God. He's a just God. He's a righteous God. And we should have a healthy understanding of who he is. Who are you coming before this morning? I mean, who are we singing to? Who it is, is that we're worshiping in this place? You know, the Bible says that God is a consuming fire. So there is, we should have a healthy fear of God. We should remember him as, you know, oh, that's the Old Testament. No, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. You know, great fear fell upon them. It's the understanding of the authority that God is in our life. He is your, your God. He's your Lord. So we, we, we should reverence him in that way. God is faithful. He doesn't play games. He's real. And he exposes counterfeit Christianity for two reasons. Because he wants to deal with the person. He desires for that person to bow their knee to him. He wants to spend eternity with that person. But he will not lie to you. And he will not act like you have something you do not have. And in your heart of heart, you know it. And he speaks to you about it. And he says, stop, stop trying to act like you have this thing when you don't. And if that's you this morning, all he's asking you to do is bow your knee. The last thing he wants you to do is breathe your last breath in a state of 
counterfeit Christianity. Genuine Christianity is rooted in love. It manifests itself in unity, manifests itself in all the things that we talked about there. And so this morning, you have to weigh everything that's been said and ask yourself, where do I sit, Lord? How do I respond to what's being said here today? You know, is it the Holy Spirit that's filled my heart or is it Satan that's filled my heart? Somebody is. Somebody's filling your heart this morning. Who is it? Paul says, examine yourself. See whether you're in the faith. Ask yourself the tough questions. At the end of the day, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. You can see the fruit of your life. You can see it. God can see it. We, we will do a horrible job of trying to determine whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, but you know it and God knows it. And that's all that matters here this morning. So don't fake it till you make it because you'll never make it. Right this morning, bow your knee to Jesus if you haven't. If you have, then hey, keep on keeping on. He's coming soon, amen? Father, we thank you for your word this morning and we ask you, God, as we close now, that you help us to be responsive to the message that you've given here this morning in this, in this storyline, this event that happened. Lord, you use real people and real situations to speak into our lives. You want to train us and teach us this morning. Father, we want to be like the, the genuine Christians in uh, Acts chapter 4, Lord. We want to be those people who are, who are unified with one heart and soul, Lord, that we are uh, just manifesting the, the fruit of the spirit of love in our lives. God, that we would be people who are generous with one another, that are evangelistic and are willing to outreach, Lord, even sometimes when it's a little bit scary that we would step out and speak about you for what, all that you've done, Father. We ask you this morning, Lord, as we, we close here to, to look in our hearts, to help us to determine where are we at with you. May we heed your voice. For some of us this morning, Lord, we may be in a quandary of trying to understand what is it that I'm supposed to be looking for? And I pray to that one, Lord, that you would speak directly to their heart that you would help them to know what they need to do to either repent, return to you or to bow their knee for the very first time to you, Lord. We know that it has nothing to do with the words that we've said to you. But ultimately, our actions speak louder than our words. You say to us, how can you call me Lord, Lord and not do what I say? So this morning, God, we just pray there, the spirit is moving in this place and you desire to reconcile man to yourself. And so if that's you this morning and you're not sure that if you breathe your last breath that you are going to be in his presence and he's going to say, enter into your rest. Then this morning you can call on his name. His name is Jesus. The name above every name. You can call on his name and you can be forgiven of your sins. And if that's you, you just pray this prayer with me right where you are. In sincerity, Lord Jesus, I come to you now broken before you, God, desiring to have the assurance that I belong to you. I ask you, Lord, to forgive me of my sins. I turn away, Lord, even now, and I turn to you. Believe that you died and you rose again from the dead for me so that I could be forgiven. 
Now, Lord, take my life and change me. I want to be a good tree that bears good fruit, that I can see your hand at work in my life. And so I surrender myself to you. In Jesus' name. And Father, for everyone else in this room, God, that we would be more on fire for you today than ever before, that we wouldn't take our hand off the plow, but we would fasten both hands with everything that we have to the plow and do your work until you call us home. Prepare our hearts, Lord, for this week ahead. Fill us with your spirit that we might glorify you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Hey, there's gonna be some people down here to pray with you after the song, but I wanna encourage you this morning to come to the altar, man, to lay down what it is that the Lord has put on your hearts this morning. I know we're running a little bit late, but uh, the Lord wants to move and he wants you to respond to him. So I give you that opportunity to do that as we close in this song. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.